0: Around the time that Riley was seven, I told him the story of the Exodus. Specifically, I included the plagues and included more details now that I probably wouldn't recommend for age seven, but I basically listed the plagues and stopped before Passover. Emphasizing especially Pharaoh's stubbornness and refusal to let them go or the way he changed his mind back and forth, back and forth. I used a rhyme I remember from Kids Church, no, 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 the slaves cannot go. But Riley got me because he asked, so why did Pharaoh change his mind? Passover. Shoot. So I told him what I thought was a tame but true version of the Passover, that the firstborn sons of Egypt died, that finally Pharaoh relented, that the waters of the Red Sea parted for God's people but crashed on the Egyptian armies. And Riley decided... For a long time after that, that God wasn't good. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, at seven, Riley had not experienced the depth, the strength of the grip that sin with a capital S has. He isn't able to engage the idea that part of God's goodness might be intervening to end evil, but that the process for that would be painful. He's been told over and over again how good he is because God made him good, because he's stamped in God's image. So isn't everyone? How could God do that? So Riley's question is ours today. Is God good in the Exodus story? Now here's why I still think yes. One, real sin is real messy. Real sin is real painful. Real sin causes real suffering. And for any of us who are coming to the Exodus needing to adjust our lenses such that we see it through the eyes of those on the margins, through those who have been oppressed, who have been the ones to suffer, it's important that we be sure we are clear-eyed about this reality. To repeat myself with an idea from Black theologians, God isn't good if God doesn't end bad. Put another way, my friend who has since passed away, a black pastor named Jared Willis, and he once told me, Jericho's only bad news if you're inside. Now, perhaps though, most compelling to me is how God feels about these kinds of things. I'm convinced God laments that this is how it has to be. God doesn't gloat. God isn't callous. God laments it. In the Midrash, a theological commentary extension conversation of scripture in the Jewish community, if you will, there is this note about this story. The Egyptians were drowning in the sea. At the same time, the angels wanted to sing before God. And the Lord God said to them, my creations are drowning. And you are singing before me? I think this is the posture of our God. Similarly, we see it be true when we meet God and Jesus. Take, for example, how Jesus feels about Jerusalem. Not necessarily as a geographical place, but as a symbol for the heartbeat of the community that is meant to shine God's character to the world. To live in a way that matches who God is and invite others to do the same. And they aren't in so many ways. And we hear Jesus' words in Luke 13. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you. How often I have longed for you to gather your children together. As a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus laments. In the book of John, we see how Jesus' friend Lazarus has died. And Mary and Martha come running to him when Jesus arrives, too late in their mind. And the community of mourners has gathered around and they go to where Lazarus was buried. And then we read the two words that many of us know about this story. Jesus wept. When I was in seminary, I was in a class with Dr. Mary Ann My Thompson and we got to this passage and she asked for students' thoughts and I repeated what I had picked up on somewhere along the way through youth group, that Jesus weeping was evidence of his full humanity, that he really was a real person with real feelings just like us. And Dr. Thompson said, Why is it not evidence of his divinity? Why is it not evidence of a God who weeps when we weep, a God who mourns when we mourn? A God who feels all emotions because our God is emotional. And so I think that God is good in the Exodus because God laments that this is how it has to be. And then there is a second idea that I think we have to face when it comes to the plague and Red Sea pieces of the story. That we have to trust it has to be this way. So it's not just that God laments that it has to be this way and that we are invited to lament it has to be this way, but also that we have to trust it has to be this way. And that means we're invited to question if that's really the case. Yesterday, the Los Angeles Times had a headline, and it was this. U.S. leaders knew we didn't have to drop atomic bombs on Japan to win the war. We did it anyway. Now, setting aside that that is a full discussion and debate to be had— I'm not very interested for our purposes at the moment of whether or not that statement is true so much as I'm interested in what that statement represents. U.S. leaders knew we didn't have to drop atomic bombs on Japan to win the war. We did it anyway. See, the plagues, the closing of the Red Sea on Egypt's armies, it is ancient Near Eastern nuclear option. So is God like the U.S. leaders that the headline claims? Did God need to? A few weeks ago, Curtis walked through some reasons to help us believe yes. And if you haven't yet listened to that message, it could be really helpful for you as you engage this question. Because I do think we are meant to believe there was no other way. The Hebrew story is that this was impossible, and yet God found a way. And even just in our own lives, not looking at a theological apologetic or a biblical interpretation, but simply experientially, Have you not had a time when even though you know that God probably can, when you really think about it, what you believe is that it's impossible. Something you're facing just doesn't seem like it's ever going to change because of who the players are involved or the complexity of the situation or how much it's just how the world works for whatever the reason. I think we identify with this feeling of a situation that seems impossible, even to God. That's this story. And we're invited to trust that God is able to do that anyway, but it had to be this way. Similarly, there's a time in Jesus's life near the end when he knows that a mob is coming to arrest him, that crucifixion awaits him, and he's in the garden asking God if there's another way. And then he says, but not my will, but yours. He feels all the depth of sorrow and fear, anxiety, and wonders, could it be different? And we are meant to trust that no, it could not have been different. This is how it has to be. Breaking the power of death forever? Impossible. And yet God found a way. Jerusalem, how I long, but you were not willing. Pharaoh changed his mind. No, no, the slaves can't go. Death seems to always have the final word until one Sunday morning. God finds a way through. And this idea, though, that the process of finding a way had to be that way, it is due in large part, I think, to the fact that God doesn't just work with people at an individual level, but also that God works within human cultures. And this is not a choice God makes. This is a character attribute God has. It is the character of God to partner with humanity and to work within human cultures. God does not have a single universal way of relating to every community in every time and place across history, God contextualizes in ways that probably make us a bit uncomfortable if we're honest. But God is committed to working both with people and within cultures. And so we would find that the way God gets things done is bound up with the realities of the community that God is working with. Another theme to keep in mind is that people suffer for the sins of the powerful. The pharaohs of the world, when they cling to, grab hold of, won't let go of their power, it's people who suffer for that. That's how it works. It's a major biblical theme, not just in the Exodus story, but beyond. Every empire causes suffering for the people, and God continually stands against it. But it's not just a biblical theme. It is a reality in the world at large. And so I don't think a non-suffering transformation is possible without God violating the agency God has given to humanity or God's own character of working within human cultures. Neil deGrasse Tyson once said in an interview that he doesn't believe there's a God because, in his words, all religions claim there's a God who's all-powerful and all-good. Now, I don't think this statement is remotely true, but we'll get to that in a sec. And then he went on to say that he looks at the world's pain and thinks, therefore, there could not be a God. Now, I want to quibble because the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present deity idea needs nuance. The Bible speaks of God who is all-powerful in capacity. But our story is also a God who self-limits as part of their character, most notably in becoming a human in Jesus. We have a tension an all-powerful God in capacity, a self-limiting God in character, and both are true. If you'll remember, sometimes we've talked about our faith a bit like a web where anchor points create needed tension for one another, and this is one of them. Another tension. God gets their way, and God doesn't get their way. For 400 not-literal years, God has not gotten their way. Their firstborn is suffering at the hand of an oppressive empire, and God's fed up. Done. Full of the passion of a mama bear for their cub, a la Hosea 13.8. In fact, Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann goes so far as to call God irrational. It reminds me a bit of a time when Riley was about four months old, and I had to take him on a work trip with me to Las Vegas. I was working with this church. I had just joined their staff. They went to talk with various other churches in that area and kind of learn from them, Now, Riley was um, not a good sleeper. I was exhausted beyond all reason. I was really sad because I had left an old job I loved in order to be at this new job with this new church, and I was uh, annoyed and increasingly anxious because this new church had a couple of men who were a little bit more misogynistic than I would have preferred for coworkers. I was closer than I realized to irrational, but, but came into sharp clarity when, while walking down the Vegas Strip, I was crossing at a crosswalk and a car zoomed up far too tight, slammed on their brakes, jerks on back as it stops, and I turn and look through that windshield and went full mama bear on that driver. And I yelled at them in the middle of the Las Vegas strip, you will stop! I kid you not. I was irrational in my passion for my infant son in the face of the overwhelming selfishness of that driver in that city. What if irrational passion is a good thing too? I think of Narnia when Susan begins to realize that this Aslan that Mr. Beaver is describing is a lion. It changes her entire view of Aslan that she had had before to realize this. And so she asks, wait, so is he quite safe? And Mr. Beaver is incredulous. Is he safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The Bible's not as concerned with saying God is more powerful or knows more, is more present than the other gods, as it is with saying God is better in God's use of power, wiser in what God knows, kinder in God's presence. The claims of the Bible focus not just on more, but also, importantly, on better. I think Exodus invites us to consider That God is better because they're not arbitrary. Because God laments it has to be this way and invites us to lament that too. Because God tries all they can first. Because God does indeed set their people free. Because God can calm the chaos and end evil. So can God be trusted when it comes to the idea that it has to be this way? Is God good in the Exodus? If God laments it has to be this way, then yes. If God can be trusted that it has to be this way, then yes. In other words, yes if we can trust the character of God. Now, I think this does have a bit of a risk of seeming 10,000 feet up, but we also know what God is like on the ground. We have a Jesus who came close Entered in, suffered with. This is one reason in our community that we come to the table that Jesus sets to eat a meal together every week. In Isaiah 53 verses 2 to 4, we read, My servant grew up in Yahweh's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. Sometimes this idea from Isaiah is captured by naming Jesus as the suffering servant. The suffering servant. In Egypt, you suffer as a servant to the God Pharaoh and the God Ra and all the other gods of Egypt around them. Who is this Yahweh? The one who serves us bread, suffers in a body like ours for us and with us. The deliverance portion of Exodus, the plagues to the Red Sea, is a challenging thing for us, especially in our time and place now. And so may we find ourselves able to ask, can God be trusted? May we sense God willing to walk with us as we work that through. May we, like God, lament sin and all its effects, the death grip it tries to have on humanity and in the world. May we, with God, work for healing and wholeness and transformation wherever we can. Amen.